0: We're going to look at a few verses that you probably know from Azya Share, and ask ourselves using the chat box: When you read these verses, what picture of God do you have? And I mean this very literally. We're often discouraged from picturing God, and I am not suggesting this as A theological stance that it is that God has a body or looks like something. I am certainly not doing that. But what I am doing is saying when you read these verses, what image comes to your mind? And let's dig into that to see how we might understand how we look at God on the Seder night. Let's go to source number one. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to God. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for God has triumphed gloriously. Horse and driver God has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and might. God has become my deliverance. This is my God and I will enshrine the divine, the God of my parents, and I will exalt the Lord. Okay, let's take a look at some of the answers on the chat. And again, the question is, when you read these verses or when you hear these verses, what image of God do you get? We're getting a few responses. Jeffrey Dweck says, military, and David Saperstein echoed that. God is military leader. Sarah Brooks says, all-powerful. Deborah says, male, interesting. And Joel Schwab says, great wrestler. Joe Schwartz, I'm really enjoying listening to this song. I like that. Partner with all superior powers, source of strength. He is my dwelling place. That's interesting. Bachi, my dad is stronger than your dad. Yes, you're picking up on the parenthood theme there and again with the strength metaphor. Janet Kaladner says, I don't picture God, I think in terms of a source of strength. Power flowing as powerful water. And Elisheva says, but I also know God will cry about the horses and Egyptian drivers. That's interesting. So already tempering the biblical verses with the midrash. There is a very strong, um, maybe emotionless, possibly, or compassionateless aspect to these verses, but we have this other snapshot of God that already colors how we read this. Jonathan Miller says, how about my mom is stronger than your mom? We might get to that. Harvey Tesla says divine power from heaven, and Susan Katsko says kindness, love, and nature. I'm curious about that, um, Suzanne. Where do you get kindness, love, nature? I'm Roxanne Preston. I'm Suzanne Katsko's friend. She invited me, but I don't know how her name it. But um, yeah, I feel that God is in nature, and love and kindness is a very godly thing. And without it, we're really lost. Amazing. Thank you. I want to take a step back now. In this particular moment, and I mean both with everything going on in the world and whatever is going on in your own life, this vision of God in Azia Yashir, is that an accessible vision of God to you? Is that a vision of God that you can relate to? Is that the vision of God that you need to cry out to right now? In what ways might this image presented in Asya share be the image of God that you need right now? In what ways might it be inaccessible? Tell us a bit about where that is individually for you right now. To get us started, Bachi says, I don't feel much glorious triumph in this moment. Yeah, Jonathan Miller, only when this epidemic is over. Please God, soon, not during this. Rachel Braun, yes, God is the liberator here, strikes out against the oppressor. We can't do that, but it is a model of what God thinks of oppression. Janet says, I do need a source of strength. I'm not sure this particular source of strength is the one I need right now. Betsy Strauss, image for me is a storm, sounds overwhelming to me in this moment. David Schwartz, struggling with understanding the time frame. We'll come back to that. Sarah Brooks says, God doesn't seem all powerful anymore. David Saperstein, we need divine assistance. Survival is a grace of God. Deborah Ross, this God destroyed Pharaoh. Will our God do this again for us? Oh, That hit hard. Let's take a moment to step back from the chat. And we'll start going in a little bit to what we'll be looking at today. Today we're going to be looking at a majash that actually doesn't try to uproot these ver- these verses from Azya Share. It actually uses these verses from Azya Share as a way into telling a different story about who God is during the Exodus, who God is in Egypt, and what I'd like us to do as we look at this story, as we look at this majash, is ask ourselves. The following. In what ways can these images of God actually live together? The image that we get purely from as Yashir as Pshat, and the image that we'll get from this majrash And in what ways might we what ways might we find to cry out to either one of those god, either one of those images of God, or perhaps both on the Seder night this year? Let's take a look at the source sheet. We are going to scroll down to source number two. This is a piece from the Talmud Bavli, and it's talking about how it actually happened that the Jewish people in the middle of their oppression in Egypt managed to still create families, managed managed in some way to find comfort in it. Let's take a look. Ravavira taught, in the merit of the righteous women that were in that generation, the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. At the time when these women would go to the river to draw water, the Holy One, blessed be He, first mention of God, would materialize for them small fish that would enter into their pitchers, and they would therefore draw pitchers that were half filled with water and half filled with fish. And they would then come and place two pots on the fire, one pot of hot water for washing their husbands and one pot of fish with which to feed them. And they would then take to their husbands to the field and they would bathe their husbands and anoint them with oil and feed them and give them to drink and bond with them between the sheepfolds, as it is stated when you lie among the sheepfolds. As a reward for when you lie among the sheepfolds, the Jewish people merited to receive the plunger of Egypt, as it is stated. The wings of the dove are covered with silver and her pinions with the shimmer of gold. And here we get to the introduction or what is chronologically the introduction to the Midrash that we'll be focusing on today. And when these women would become pregnant, they would come to their homes. And when the time for them to give birth would arise, would arrive, they would go and give birth in the field under the apple tree. As it is stated, under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in travail with you. There was she in travail and brought you forth. Let's take a moment and just unpack this to make sure that we have all of the events straight. The introduction states that it's actually in the merit of the women of that generation who did these very domestic, caring, and I would say actually romantic acts in order to encourage family life and in order to actually encourage procreation. The first mention of God that we get in this text is actually God providing the fish that would enter their pitchers that would provide this home-cooked meal that in this text seems to be the basis of the romantic encounter between the women and their husbands. Let's take a moment and just focus on this. In this text, where God is the provider of fish, what image do you get of God from this text? Creator, sperm into a womb. Yeah, it's a very potent image. We have from Toby, nourisher, from Joe, instigator. I like that. David Schwartz says, multiple as the fish in the sea. Deanne, I'm not sure if it's Diane or Diane, says nurturing. Joe Schwab, provider of our needs, even is in crisis. And Carol says, as Shai says, he empowers us to do his work. The meme that Vati says, the meme that says now kiss. I don't know that meme, but apparently I should. And Deborah says water is a source of life. So I want to note that in this text, something that came up is that we're still very much in what I would say is a traditional image of God. Not traditional in that we often think of God as providing food for us down to the actual fish that go into our pitchers. We think of God as a nourisher, though, and we think of God as a creator. So in this image... We've moved from God as military person, as warrior, into another traditional image of God, which is God as creator, God as provider. In the next snapshot, we're going to get a slightly different view of God, and then we're gonna go back and see how do these all play together. The midrash that we're about to look at picks up on the question of, very nice. The woman went into the field and gave birth under the apple trees. What happened to those babies? The question arises obviously because in Egypt, as we know, baby boys were sentenced to be thrown into the Nile under Pharaoh's decree. This Midrash, though, gives us an alternative possibility that maybe not all those baby boys were thrown into the Nile, that maybe there is actually not just salvation at the end of Egypt, but salvation within Egypt, that God creates a pocket of salvation for those babies in Egypt, and we re-meet them on the other side of the Red Sea. We're now in source number three. I made you grow like the grass of the field, That is both a quote from Yechazkel from Ezekiel and is a quote from a part of the Haggadah that we read. Um, Those of you who tune out at that point where there are the images of blood and breasts and you were like the grass, you were like the grass of the field, this midrash actually focuses in on that and sees that moment, I would say as the moment of greatest divine revelation. Let's take a look at what it does. I made you grow like the grass of the field. How so? When Pharaoh decreed that all newborn boys would be cast into the sea, what did the women do? When a Jewish woman felt contractions beginning, she would go out to give birth in a field. Once she had given birth, she would look upwards and say, you said be fruitful and multiply, and I've done my part. Now you do yours. This is actually an image of motherhood that can only go up until the point of birth. And it's actually an image of almost a challenge to God, I would say. I have done everything that I can up until this point, and at this moment I I am helpless. I cannot possibly be a mother to this child. And in this moment, I would actually say that the abandonment of the child, the abandonment of the newborn baby, is being framed as an act of total faith, as opposed to the way that we would usually read a text like this, possibly with some sort of pang, possibly even with some sort of horror. In this moment, it is being framed as, this woman has done the best that she possibly can. She actually has committed an, an act of incredible bravery. And at this moment, she's actually committing an act of great religious faith by consigning the care of the baby to God. Joel Schraub says the Midrash helps to explain how it was possible that there were Israelites for Moses to rescue. Yes, absolutely. After 40 years of driving babies, there shouldn't have been anyone to rescue. Sarah Brooks says, as a mother of three, birth is a moment in which society also has an influence on the baby, whereas before birth, mother is total environment. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. And I think we're actually going to see in this image, it's possible that instead of going from womb to world, the baby will actually be going from womb to a different womb that God's providing. Let's pause on that for a moment. What would the Egyptians do? That's the obvious question. We now have babies abandoned in a field. When the Egyptians saw the Jewish women going out to the fields to give birth there, they would watch them from a distance. Once the Jewish women had given birth and returned to the city, the Egyptians would pick up rocks and go to kill the babies. But the infants would be swallowed up in the field and would re- reappear far away, only to be swallowed up again and appear again elsewhere again and again, until the Egyptians got tired and went away. This is, the best I've heard this image describes as a game of whack-a-mole. Has everyone played that at some sort of, good, at some sort of amusement park? Just to spell out what the Midrash is picturing here, the Egyptians come, it's actually a very comic image in this very serious story. The Egyptians come running over to where the baby is, baby gets swallowed up into the ground. If I was good at sound effects, I would do some sort of popping sound when the baby re-emerges around 50 feet that way, let's say. The Egyptians run over there, try to grab the baby. The baby is reabsorbed into the earth and again pops out somewhere else. And I think the Midrash is doing two things here. The first is it's taking this military power this horrific, horrific power, killers of babies, and actually making them into, what's the name of the hunter in Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fad? The Egyptians in this moment become Elmer Fad. And I don't think that's accidental, and I don't think that that is religiously meaningless. In doing that in taking that step, the Midrash is actually taking the thing that horrifies us most, and allowing us for just a moment to laugh at it. And it's saying that is important. It's important enough that God chose to save the babies in that way. There's something incredibly subversive about that laugh. I'm going to rely on another pop culture reference. Bachi, I didn't understand your meme reference, but I'm a millennial, I understand this at least. How many of you read the third Harry Potter? There are creatures called Dementors in the third Harry Potter which are actually the personification of all that you fear and all that sucks the life and joy and happiness out of you. And the spell that's needed to overcome the Dementors is not something that's incredibly powerful or forceful. It's not a military sort of spell. It's looking at whatever image the Dementor is projecting that's your biggest fear, and finding a way to make it funny, finding a way to make it ridiculous, which is actually the name of the spell to fight it. And in this image, in this image, the Midrash is actually doing something very similar. Whereas in the Exodus from Egypt, at Kriya Yamsuf, in the plagues, In the shot of the text, in the plain meaning, in the plain reading of the Torah, the way that God overcomes the Egyptians is through military might, horrors to fight horrors. Here it's actually taking the Egyptians and making them ridiculous, laughable, and removing our ability to really be frightened of them. And I want us to hold that for a moment, as we go on to see how God actually projects God's self in this moment. And I want us to come back at the end and tie this together. Why is it important that here we are using humor as opposed to might? Let's keep going. And how did the children live in the fields? Rabbi Levi said that the, Holy one blessed, that the Holy Blessed One would assign two angels to each one one to wash her and one to clothe her. And he nursed and anointed them, as it says, he nursed you with honey from the rock, and I washed you with water and clothed you in garments. Rabbi Chia the Great said, it wasn't angels who did that, rather the Holy One, the Holy Blessed One Himself, as it said, I washed you. Had it said I caused you to be washed, I would have said that perhaps it was by an angel. But since it says, I washed you and not an angel, may the name of the holy blessed one be blessed since he he himself cared for them. Let's take a moment to pause. There is a disagreement here between Rabbi Levi and Rabbi Chia about who exactly is caring for the babies in the field. We know that they're cared for by divine beings. We know that they are washed. We know that they are clothed. We know that they are anointed and nursed. And I just want to take a moment to really focus in on what the actual reality of doing that for babies is. Anointing them is essentially the same, to a certain extent, as both washing them and I would say putting diaper ointment on them. It's putting substances on the baby, oily substances, in order to make sure that the baby is safe, that the baby is cared for, And that the baby doesn't develop something as simple as a diaper rash. Rabbi Levi is saying that was done by the angels. And Rabbi Chia looks at Rabbi Levi and says, no, read the text carefully. It does not say, I caused you to be washed. It says, I washed you. And Rabbi Chia holds out strongly that this is not an angel doing this. This is not a messenger. This is God, God self. Washing, diapering, anointing these babies in the field. And that is what God did while the Jews were in Egypt. God cared for the abandoned babies. God washed babies and changed diapers. Let's take a moment and talk about why Rabbi Levy would go with what seems to be a less obvious reading of the verse. Why would it be important to Rabbi Levi to say, actually, it's angels here? Before we go into Rabbi Chia's opinion that it was actually God. Why is it so important for Rabbi Levi that he's willing to go with a less obvious reading of the verse to say that this is actually angels? Oh, interesting. Bachi, two angels equals two parents. That's very interesting. Sarah Brooks offers to avoid anthropomorphizing God, and Telegraph is saying, too menial for God to be involved. Lexi says, Hi, Lexi. This has been one of my favorite midrashiams since I first learned it a few years ago. I feel like Rabbi Levy felt uncomfortable with it for the same reason that I love it, in that it's both very anthropomorphic and very feminine. Carol says, He probably thought it was beneath God's dignity, and angels often sub-forgotten Torah. Actual Suzanne Kachko, thank you for that clarification. (laughs) I see you waving. Says, equating the angels, i.e., God's hands, with Hashem, same as Rav Shai's point. Interesting. So, actually, a reading backwards there. David Schwartz, perhaps it was Hashem, not an angel, that smote the Egyptian firstborn. Yeah, let's go there. This conversation of was it God, was it an angel, actually very clearly echoes the point in our Haggadah where God insists that it was God, God's self who smote the firstborn of Mitzrayim. Ani velo malach, ani sadaf, ani hu velo acher. It was me, it was not an angel, it was not a seraph, it was me and not another. And I think that some of these points that we're bringing up, this is below God's dignity, this is below, this is maybe women's work and thus unfi- unfitting of God might echo part of the discomfort that we have with God smiting the Egyptian firstborn and why the Haggadah feels the need to double down so strongly on that. It is in many ways uncomfortable for me to imagine a God who goes house to house, singling out firstborns to kill them, and the Haggadah insists, yes, that is uncomfortable and it is part of your story. And in this Midrash, it might be very uncomfortable for me to imagine that God spent God's time in Egypt changing diapers. And I want to actually really make that point um, accessible for a moment. Um, as 21st century people who just listened to Rav Shai's beautiful introduction about Um, elevating these more traditionally feminine roles of care. We might initially want to push away that idea that in any way it would be uncomfortable that God cares for babies. But there are lots of moments of caring for babies on a day-to-day basis that, while it is possibly some of the most important work in the world, are undignified. You only need one experience, not even of it being your own child, but of babysitting and dealing with an explosive diaper to imagine why one would say this is not work for God. How many of you have read Mara Benjamin's incredible work on theology and child care? Someone remind me in the chat of the actual proper name. I know that I'm going to get five answers immediately. Obligated self. Thank you. She does an incredible job not just of playing up the heroic parts of care, but also the parts of child care and baby care where it is draining and where it might feel undignified and where it might feel like it actually is the antithesis of what it means to be an autonomous human being and yet is holy. And in this moment, I think it's important to give voice to Rabbi Levi, who is standing up for his idea of a dignified God. Let's come back for a moment to Rabbi Chia. Now that we have defended to some extent Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Chia looks at Rabbi Levi and says, that actually is exactly what God was doing. That undignified work was exactly what God was doing. God was In there in Egypt in the field nursing babies and changing diapers and washing them and cleaning them and let's pay attention by the way to the fact that this doesn't talk about the more elevated form elevated in quotes forms of childcare that we might want to assign to God this doesn't talk about God teaching them to read this doesn't talk about God teaching them Torah This talks simply about God caring for the bodies of these infants and saying that's exactly what God was doing. And that's important. It's important that God would not yield to this to an angel. It is important that this, while the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, was what God was spending God's time doing. Elisheba says, haven't read it yet, but I have a theory of chesed shal emet being the work of parenting. Oof. Sorry, that hit me very strongly. Thank you for that. Janet says, "Draining and undignified, yes, but holy in a way that smiting the firstborn is not. Smiting is necessary, but not holy." <sighs> yeah, I I will say that that is also my instinct, and I will also say that. As someone who has never been, as someone who has lived a free life among a free people for all of my life, I withhold judgment on that. I don't know what valence smiting has for someone whose people has been enslaved for hundreds of years, and I don't pretend to know what sparks of holiness might be there that some as someone who's lived a very lucky life I can't access. Lexi, what Janet says feels like the relevant point regarding the indignity and femininity are one and the same in a lot of ways. It feels significant that the rabbis are comfortable with a murderous God, but not a mother in God. Lexi, what I would say is that I'm not quite sure that the rabbis are comfortable with that either. I think that there's a reason that the Haggadah needs to hit us over the head with, it was me who did it. And I think that's because it's uncomfortable even for the rabbis. I think that there's actually that spark of perhaps that incredibly mighty smiting God isn't naturally comfortable for me either. Perhaps I would also prefer to consign that work to angels. Rachel, all of us who know how intense baby care is now know why it took so long to get out of slavery. Um, Joe Schwartz, isn't there somewhere in the Torah where Moshe imagines himself as a nursing mother? Yes, and he's actually very angry about it at that point. Um, he is very resentful that God has placed him in the position of being a nursing mother. Let's take a moment before we go on to the rest of this passage. In what ways is this God who nurses babies, is this God who diapers babies, and who does that while the world is falling apart? In what ways is that God accessible to you right now? And in what ways might that not actually be the God that you need right now? This God who is spending God's time while the Jews are enslaved in Egypt, taking care of babies, diapering them, nursing them, In what ways might that image of God be what you need right now in your life? In what ways might that image make God more accessible to you in this particular moment? And in what ways might that image of God actually be inaccessible to you right now? In what ways might that actually not be the connection to God that you need at this moment? I want us to think carefully about both of those. Sheva says, this God will hold me when my fear of the pandemic wells up in the middle of the night. That really resonates me, with me. We need to be nursed through a plague. Rachel says, difficult because one byproduct of coronavirus is the potential for an actual exercise of more political oppression in the world. Yeah, this is the difficult part of this image. And I want to really give voice to that. There's a beautiful image of God spending God's time nursing these babies, diapering these babies, and it's actually one of my personal favorite images of God. And there's a part of us, I think, or at least sometimes a part of me reading this midrash that wants to cry out, how are you doing this when this people is enslaved? I want you to go and be mighty and take this people out. I want you to go do that sooner rather than later. That image of might and whatever we need to actually move out of there is actually what I want and need from you. And in that way, there's a path where this image of God as the nurturer might actually fail us. gives us a reason to believe that it might be an either-or choice. We might be deprived of the God who might actually liberate us, save us, if God is doing this nurturing. I'm not saying it has to be read that way. I'm saying that that is one possible objection to fully embracing this image of God. Jonathan Miller, this image bothers me because if God can nurse babies, why couldn't God have redeemed Israel earlier? Toby Weissman, first responders are God's hands, angels. Yes, particularly in this moment where, sorry, it hurts even to say it, um, people aren't allowed to be with their loved ones in the hospital as they're dying. We're in a horrific reverse image of the women who are forced to abandon their babies because they cannot care for them at this moment, which is family members who are forced to be away from their loved ones as they lie dying. And there are these people who are with our loved ones in this moment, taking care of them, and washing them, and anointing them, and making sure that they get the care that they need. And I want to focus in for a moment not just on healing, but care which is so often an overlooked part of medical work and so important. The people who come and shift people in beds so that they don't develop bed sores are holy people. The people who maintain dignity of patients while they wash them in the hospital, even when it is so easy to treat them like physical objects as opposed to people with bodies are holy people. And in that moment, 100%, 100%, I think that that image of God is very, very potent. David Schwartz, as vulnerable as we feel in this time, one of the reads might be that we are not tru- the truly vulnerable babies that the Midrash and Roshai spoke of. Not sure I'm comfortable with the read I just shared, main. Sorry, I skipped ahead to your second one. I'm not sure I totally followed that. If you want to chime in on the chat, I would love to hear more about what you mean. One more, Judy... S- Judri Sobar says, the need that babies have to have their diverse change is a divine creation. It and other difficulties of life entail both profound challenge and an opportunity to nurture. I want to focus in on that last comment for a moment. Judy saying that actually the... Babies are providing an opportunity both for human beings in general, but also actually are providing an opportunity for God, that God has a need to nurture as well. And that actually in this way, these abandoned babies are somehow a gift to God. And I I love that image and I just want to highlight it. Let's come back to the end of the Midrash. What happened to these babies at the end? We're back in the Midrash. The babies grew in the fields like grass. After they grew, they returned to their homes in flocks. This is what Yechezkel said, you grew like the grass of the field. How did they know which home was their families? The Holy Holy Blessed One accompanied them, pointed each and every one to his parents' home, and said, call your father this and your mother that. I just want to take a moment to highlight that God is not only returning the babies, God is making sure that they know their parents' names. In Shemot, in the book of Exodus as a whole, this is a particularly profound insight. Shemot plays very carefully with namelessness and the names. You can see the transition as you read through the first few chapters. As people gain more humanity, they become named. As redemption happened, they become named. And God makes sure that each of these babies before they return to their household knows that their parents have names and know their individual names. The children would say to their mothers, don't you remember when you gave birth to me on this day in the field five months ago? This seems to be possibly, um, possibly some sort of typo that, uh, that arose in the text at some point. It seems like five years would make a lot more sense for a child who's walking and talking. But the text that we have says five months. And she would ask him, who raised you? And he would say, a special, handsome man, unlike anyone else. He brought me here and he's right outside. She would say to him, come and show him to me. And they would go outside and search all the alleyways and everywhere, but they couldn't find him. When they came to the sea, at the at the at Kriyat Yamsof right now, at the Red Sea, going back to our verses from Asia Shir, which is where this is happening, at the moment of the Exodus, when they came to the sea, they saw him, and they pointed him out to their mothers with their fingers and said to them, "This is my God, and I will honor him. This is the one who raised me. This is my God, and I will honor him." I.e., I made you grow like the grass of the field. This midrash at the end is taking us back to those verses from Az-Yashir. And it's not uprooting the plain meaning. It's not saying that those is, aren't what the words mean. It's not taking away the military vision of God. What it is saying is that there's a double meaning. The first words, This is my God and I will honor him are actually being said by people who recognize God, babies who recognize God, babies who recognize God from the moment of their birth, babies who recognize God because that is the God who raised them as children. And in this reading, those verses from Aziah share are actually yes, about the military God, about the God who's at this moment liberating the Jews, but it also is about this image of God, God who diapers. God who washes babies, God who nurses babies, and presumably, though the text doesn't say this, the God who comes crying babies at night. I want to take a moment now and ask this possibly final question, depending on how we do it on time. Can these two images live together? Is it possible on the Seder night or when we're saying as Yashir, to actually say these verses and hold in our hearts at one time the God who liberates the Jews from Egypt, the God who brings the plagues, the God who's contained in that military image, and the God who diapers babies, the God who washes them, the God who nurses them when there's no one else to do it. Is it possible to hold those two together? And if you have room for it emotional room for it what would it look like for you to hold those two together this year particularly let's take a moment and go to the chat Joni says seems like it's great parenting Sarah Brooks says of course mothers have been doing all that stuff as mere humans Sarah I have to say I am in my second trimester right now and that's a high standard to aspire to please god by me um Suzanne Kachko, just as we are Bidzmutz B'z- Elokim and have many different sides and faces, so Hashem has many faces. Rachel Braun, like the Yiddish description of God, Tatzis Melech, the sweet parent sovereign. That's beautiful. Thank you. I want to take one last moment, and we might actually get cut out in the middle of this, to take a look at the verses from Shir Hashirim where this comes from, where the root text is. "Under the apple tree, I roused you. It was there that your mother conceived you. there she bore you. there she who bore you, conceived you." This is obviously the obvious textual root, this image of women giving birth under the apple trees. But I want to keep reading because I think there's one more key to why the Midrash chooses these verses. Let's skip ahead to verse seven. Vast floods cannot quench love, nor rivers drown it. If a man offered all his wealth for love, he would be laughed to scorn. What I want to leave us with is the possibility that it actually is that verse, one verse ahead. Many rivers cannot quench love. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the rivers drown it. That gives birth to this midrashic idea of God caring for the babies. These babies who are literally supposed to be drowned by many waters, these babies who are literally supposed to be drowned in the river, in this reading are saved by love, by God's love, by physical love, by compassionate physical care. And I want to offer that reading through the text of Shira and that so many people have the custom to read at the end of the Seder as a sort of um, Defiance, you may have many waters, you may have great might. There might be impossible obstacles that seem like in this moment they're going to drown me. But there's also compassionate care, godly compassionate care, that through the reading of Shira Shirim, through this midrash, offers us a way forward. And that's where I want to leave us. Thank you so much, everyone. Chag Sameach. I hope that your satyrs this year are nourishing in whatever way they can be. And I'm wishing all of us just strength going forward, strength and compassion for others. Thank you.